You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. When it comes to activism, uh, and, and I'm still an activist. I was an act up and queer nation a long time ago, and I, I regard my column sometimes as a you know a, a, a platform from which I can launch an activist crusade, like the It Gets Better Project. When it comes to activism, uh, you know those of us who are diehards and willing to throw ourselves into it 24 hours a day for a particular cause for a particular amount of time, what we have to do for everybody else who isn't as passionate or has lives and other responsibilities that are drawing on their time is activists have to identify the doable thing, the thing that. People who want – who care and want to make a contribution can do and get done and feel good about uh, and, and make a contribution. And if you get enough people to do that small doable thing, all of those people coming together, thousands or millions of people coming together to do the doable thing can really make a change because collectively they you know, – all of us together can punch above our weight as individuals. And that's really what the It Gets Better project was. It was – the doable thing. Sit in front of your computer and talk for 10 minutes. Turn on your goddamn uh, video recording thing on your computer and talk. Talk about where you were when you were 15 and where you are now and how it got better for you, what you did to make it better for yourself and help put into perspective for a lot of these queer kids what they're suffering through right now, queer kids who are being bullied or isolated alone. Uh, and enough people did that that it had this huge impact. But it was a small thing, this tiny little thing that any one individual could do, this very small act. And – Right now, we're facing a crisis in Russia. We talked about it before on the show. A series of anti-gay laws have been passed in Russia, um, banning gay propaganda and sharing any information with people under the age of 18 about, about alternative sexual identities or practices. What this has effectively done, these laws, including laws that have banned gay pride parades in Russia for 100 years, uh, in Moscow and St. Petersburg, is it has made it illegal to be out of the closet. And the authorities have stood silently by while vigilante groups have run around the country, organized vigilante groups attacking young gay people, uh, trans people, um, going on social media or gay dating sites uh, and luring and entrapping gay teenagers, beating them up on camera, filming it without any fear of persecution or prosecution, beating up a, a young queer kid, forcing him to drink urine. Uh, sexually humiliating him, shoving a bottle in a kid's ass and then shoving it further into his ass with a baseball bat, filming it and all these people who are assaulting these kids showing their faces because they do not fear prosecution because they know the authorities are on their side, right? This is what's going on in Russia right now. And now a law has been proposed by United Russia, which is Putin's party, that would take children from their gay and lesbian parents. There are, according to estimates, 2 million same-sex families in Russia raising children and a new law has been proposed that would – confiscate, remove those children from the homes of their gay or lesbian parents and put them into Russian orphanages, which is about – which is a tiny step above just chucking them into a fucking wood chipper. Google Russian orphanage and see what it says about what Russian orphanages are like, about the damage, the neglect, the hunger, the privation, the, the abuse, sexual abuse included that goes on in Russian orphanages. And you just – you know, you want to punch a hole in somebody specifically – the motherfuckers who are pushing this law. Now, gay parent Masha Gessen, who is a Russian journalist, author, she wrote the book The Man Without a Face, a biography of Vladimir Putin, which was really well-reviewed and won a lot of awards. Um, she's a lesbian parent. She has three children with her partner. They live in Moscow. They've already 
moved one of their children to the United States because he was adopted and they were afraid that even with the law as it stands now before the passage potentially of this new law that would remove children from the homes of their gay or lesbian parents, that because they'd done this adoption that the Russian you know, anti-gay propaganda law, the law criminalizing being out, could be used to negate their adoption and take their sons. They've moved their son to the United States and they're preparing to move their other children and themselves to the United States to – Come here, and they don't have to claim asylum because, luckily, uh, for Masha Gessen and her family, she is a dual citizen, so she can move here without having to claim asylum. Canada is now offering asylum to LGBT people who are fleeing Russia. This is how bad it's getting in Russia. We are going to have to do that too here in the United States. We're going to have to follow Canada's lead. So this is what's going on, right? This is why you've seen the vodka boycott, right? DumpRussianVodka.com. Go read about it. This is why you've seen demonstrations on September 3rd all over the world. There's a demonstration in Seattle. 250 people came to the Russian consular residence to protest these laws. It was a small doable thing. Those of us who have been throwing ourselves into this, we said, let's have a demo. You come. We bring this, we'll bring the signs. Be here at this time. We set it all up and people, 250 people did the small doable thing, the little ask. Show up at the demo. Scream and yell. It made headlines. It raised awareness about what's going on in Russia and that is having an impact on what's going on in Russia. Right? The activists, LGBT activists on the ground in Russia say what we're doing here, making noise, screaming and yelling, the small acts, the, the, the vodka boycott, um, these protests, the protests last night at the Metropolitan Opera in New York, that this is having an impact. It is making them safer on the ground. Not safe but a little safer because it's getting through the heads of, of the assholes in the Kremlin that the world is paying attention, the world is watching. It's going to get it into the heads of Russian politicians that there is a political and diplomatic price to be paid, that they cannot with impunity just continue to abuse Russian LGBT people. So anyway, it's a very roundabout way to get to the point I wanted to make about that small doable thing. I, I live in Seattle. I'm immersed in Seattle politics. I don't often drag Seattle politics into the podcast. But sometimes you know, I get everybody to chase after a high school principal in some small town in Mississippi or jump on some issue on some small town in Canada. This time, if you'll indulge me, we're going to talk a little bit about a small issue right here in my hometown, right in my backyard. In Seattle, gay-friendly Seattle, and we're going to drag you all into Seattle politics for just a second, but, it, but it's worth it and I won't waste your time, I promise, and I'll do this as quickly as I can. Seattle is home to one of the four Russian consuls in the United States. Like there's an ambassador, there's a Russian embassy in DC, and then there are these consul residences and consul generals in four different cities. Seattle's one of four. We had a protest here at the Russian consul general's residence, very successful. The mayor of Seattle came to the protest and waved to stop Putin's sign. His opponent in the general election, Ed Murray, came to that same protest and waved to signs. We have both our current mayor and potential next mayor on board with this demo. The Russian consul general was so angry, he sent a letter to the mayor of Seattle, Mike McGinn, asking him if it was the city's official position, this opposition to these anti-LGBT laws. Is this the city's official position? And the mayor went to the city council, went to Sally J. Clark, who is the president of the city council and asked if the city council wanted to do a joint resolution with him saying, yes, this was the city's official position, that the city was opposed to these anti-gay laws, opposed to the anti-gay violence in Russia and appalled by it and wanted to see it stop. And the city council told the mayor to fuck off. The city council would not do a resolution. This is the same city council that has done resolutions on Arizona's Papers, Please laws, apartheid, Burma, circus animals. The city council, that city council that has weighed in on foreign affairs before, 
and non-city business before said it wasn't going to do a resolution with the mayor because it wasn't city work. What? What really happened? What really happened is you know, this is where we get into the weeds with Seattle city politics. We have a mayor that's unpopular at the city council. The city council accuses the mayor of not being able to work with anyone and then the city council proves the mayor can't work with anyone by refusing to work with him. That's why the city council, Sally J. Clark, said they didn't want to do a joint resolution with the mayor. Just a reflex reaction. The mayor wants to do it, so I'm against it. Kind of like the House Republicans and Obama. If Obama came out for oxygen, the House Republicans would be against it. There was this poll that came out the other day of Republicans, just a quick digression, that showed that Republicans opposed Obamacare at a much higher rate than they opposed the Affordable Care Act. That if you asked Republicans if they opposed Obamacare, it was off the charts. They oppose it. If you asked them if they oppose the Affordable Care Act, no, they don't oppose it so much. Obamacare is the Affordable Care Act. I'm tempted to start to, to start a campaign to rename Oxygen Obamagen and then see how long these Republican fucking idiots can hold their breath before they topple over and start breathing again. I'm not calling for their deaths. They'll hold their breath till they pass out and then they'll start breathing again and realize what fucking idiots they're being. This is kind of what's been going on in Seattle for four years with our mayor. The mayor is for it. The city council is against it and the city council then says the mayor can't work with anybody. And playing this kind of petty bullshit local politics, this is why the city council, Sally J. Clark, the president of the city council, refused to do what? The doable thing, the small thing. Kick out that resolution quickly with the mayor. Send it over to the Russian consul general. The city that hosts one of the four Russian consulates in the United States saying to its top diplomat, we are opposed. We are united in opposition. We are appalled by these laws. According to Russian activists on the ground in Moscow, this would have made news there. It would have had an impact there. It would have contributed in a small way to making Russian queer people safer there. It was a small doable thing, a small ask, a thing the city council could have done and refused to do. People all over the world, thousands of people protesting in Copenhagen, in London, in Denmark, in Berlin, in Seattle, in San Francisco, in Washington, D.C., in New York. Berlin, I was in Berlin. There's a big sign in this gay bar that they've gotten rid of all their Russian vodka because they're doing a doable thing. They're doing this small thing to help raise awareness. Ask the bartender why, it said in Germany. Ask us why we drummed our Russian vodkas because they want people thinking and talking about this. I was just in London and the Compton, this very famous gay bar in Soho on Old Compton Way, big sign outside the bar saying – Comptons of Soho have removed all Russian products in light of the escalating situation currently faced by the LGBT community in Russia. Comptons, this bar in Soho, famous gay bar, doing the small thing, doing the doable thing. The city of Seattle, the mayor, the city council asked a direct question by the, one of the top Russian diplomats in the United States. Are you in opposition to these laws? Is this your official position? City council won't answer that fucking direct question. It's a yes or no question. Will not answer that question. Will not do the doable thing that the city council could have done in that moment. Why? Because they hate the mayor. Sally J. Clark hates the mayor so hard that she can't set aside her petty political differences for one fucking minute to kick out that resolution and offers transparent bullshit excuses for why she can't, why the city council can't. Not city business. Sally J. Clark sponsored a resolution, sponsored the resolution the city council passed in opposition to – Arizona's paper please laws attacking immigrants. Not exactly city fucking business either. And this is where it gets really galling. <clears throat> and I'm going to wrap this up really quickly here. Sally J. Clark is one of the city council's two gay members. 
Sally J. Clark, Tom Rasmussen, two gay members of Seattle City Council. Sally Clark is the president of Seattle City Council, a lesbian who will not do, who failed to do, who wouldn't do, who refused to do that small doable thing when asked. Thousands of other people all around the world are doing the doable thing that they can do for Russia, dumping vodka, showing up at protests, waving a placard, writing letters. Sally J. Clark, lesbian president of Seattle City Council, couldn't do it, couldn't set aside her hate on for the mayor long enough here in Seattle to do the doable thing. The small thing that she could have done, that the city council could have done to make LGBT people on the ground in Russia, including gay parents, a little bit safer by getting through to the Russian government and media, by having more stories written about the world is paying attention to this and it matters to us. Here's a doable thing you can do. You can send an email to Sally Clark and tell her to do the doable thing. It's not too late. The law that would take, that would rip children from the homes of their, their gay and lesbian parents has not yet passed, could pass at any moment. There's still time for the Seattle City Council to add its voice and do the doable thing. Send Sally Clark an email at sally.clark at seattle.gov and ask her to do the doable thing. And a programming note, it seems last week on the podcast I called uh, folks who had never smoked marijuana socially maladapted robots uh, who couldn't be trusted. I heard from a lot of my never having ever smoked pot listeners that they didn't care for this characterization. I would like to withdraw it. I know people who have never smoked pot who are not socially maladapted robots uh, and that was unfair and I apologize to all the straight edge, non-pothead, not interested in pot, never going to get high ever but also not socially maladjusted robots among my listenership. Sorry about that. And now your calls. Hi, Dan. I have a question about dating. I met a guy earlier this week and we had this really instant attraction. And then when we started talking, had a great connection. We exchanged numbers and he said he would call me. But it's been all week and I was hoping to make plans with him this weekend. Still no call. I'm wondering if I should wait for him to call me or do I call him first? Or do I text him if that's even like a dating option? I just got out of a six-year relationship, so I'm not that good at this stuff. And if I call him, will it seem like I don't trust him that he that he would call? And if I am supposed to call him, what do I say? I sometimes feel odd about giving advice to people that I'm not sure could find their own genitals in the dark. But here goes. Uh, I've just consulted my uh, dog-eared copy of Pat Boone's Twixt 12 and 20 Advice for Teenagers, published in 1950-something. And, uh, you know, Pat is against girls being forward and calling boys, that it makes girls seem too easy, eager, or available. But, you know, that was a half a fucking century ago and the dude gave you his fucking phone number. Implicit in that exchange of phone numbers is I'll call you or you'll call me. And if the exchange wasn't a digital exchange, if you didn't sit down there typing each other's phone numbers into your phones, uh, if you gave it to him on a slip of paper, maybe he lost the fucking slip of paper. That goddamn happens. Stop thinking about it. Stop overthinking it and send him a text. Just say, hey, I'm so-and-so. We met the other night at such-and-such. Would love to hang out sometime. The end. And if you never hear from him because he's the kind of dude who lives in a Twix 12 and 20 Pat Boone kind of fog era, he's that kind of anachronistic, sexist asshole that he wouldn't want to be with someone, some lady, who is so forward as to text him instead of waiting silently by her cell phone for the next 10 years waiting for him to text her. Good. You don't want to be with a douchebag like that. Disinhibit, lady. 
It's 2013. You can find your vagina in the dark, I bet. Yeah? You can text this guy of your own accord, of your own initiative. He gave you his phone number. It's okay. Text him. And what do you say? You say, hey, let's hang out. Met you the other night. Give me a text back. If you never hear from him again, good riddance. If you hear from him, yay, Yahtzee, dick for you. Hi, Dan. I'm a hetero 34-year-old male in a relationship with a loving woman. We have great chemistry and we are both open about our needs and wants in our relationship. A few hiccups aside, we've been in each other's lives for over a year and a half. Just over a year ago, a close friend of mine got married and I was a groomsman in his wedding. Long story short, I cheated on my partner with my close friend's sister. We didn't have sex, but it was still cheating. And my partner learned of my infidelity last December. It's been a long and worthwhile effort towards forgiveness and repairing our relationship. And I'm committed to being open with her in order to be healthier as a person and to simply make our relationship stronger. Here's the thing. My married friend and I are very close. He has always been a tremendous support in my life with important decisions, and it has been really difficult inwardly hanging out with him and his wife knowing what I've done. His sister is married with kids, and while I didn't instigate what happened, I certainly didn't do anything to stop it. My partner feels it is important, and I agree with her on this one, that I tell my friend what happened. The more time passes, the worse I feel, and I think I owe it to my friend to tell him the truth and let him ultimately decide if I'm the kind of person he can remain friends with. I was hoping to get some insights from you on how to best approach this with my friend. My plan is to tell him in person, and while I anticipate that this might be the last conversation we have for a while, I'm certainly hoping that he'll understand and possibly forgive me. Any advice helps, even if it is you telling me that my belief you should know is wrong. Thanks. I'm from the there are certain things that family members have a right not to know camp and that you don't have to go through life on full disclosure mode and that a relationship isn't a deposition and you don't have to answer every question necessarily 100 percent truthfully and that no human relationship would be possible if there wasn't some shading sometime or, or an omission every now and then. It seems to me that your partner is pushing you toward this confession in a way to perhaps punish you again for for this infraction. But you know, I'm just trying to put myself in the shoes of your very close friend. And if my sister fucked some friend of mine at my wedding, if I were him, that's something that I might not really need to know or want to know. It's something that once I did know, I might not enjoy knowing. It's something that once I was told and I knew it, I might – Pine for the days when I didn't know it and hadn't been told it. So, you know, you, you run your relationship with your parents, I think, on a need to know basis, right? Sometimes you run relationships with friends on a need to know basis. Does he need to know this? You fucked up. You fucked his sister who is married and has kids at this wedding. You cheated. She cheated. You're not just potentially screwing up your relationship with your best friend, but your best friend's relationship with his own sister. And if this never got back to your best friend's sister's husband, potentially that relationship too, depending on how big the explosion that you trigger is. And so I would just – if it's been – I don't know how long you said it's been. But if it's been a while, I would just leave it alone. Let it lie. Let it – let you lie. Omit this uh, little fact about your best friend's wedding. I don't think he needs to know it. But hey, I'm me and I'm not with the person you're with and she seems to be the one who's driving this and insisting upon it. And if this is the price she demands for you to stay with her, this kind of run around and disclose every ugly thing to everybody who was even tangentially involved and you really want to pay that price because you really want to be with her, then go ahead and uh, let your best friend know that you came on his sister at her at his wedding and that you feel bad. And then he can feel bad too and then everybody can feel bad.
And I think that's probably what your girlfriend is after. She feels bad. You feel bad about what you did because it was bad and you feel bad about having made her feel bad and she just wants to perhaps spread the badness around. She wants more people to enter the circle of bad feeling um, because maybe she believes that will make her feel less bad. Uh, in the end, you can tell her for me that won't make her feel any less bad. It won't make it hurt less if you spread the hurt around. It actually just grows the hurt, grows the circle of hurt. Sometimes you just got to suck it up and I would say this is one of those times. But you don't answer to me. In this instance, you answer to her. Good luck to you. Hi, Dan and the tech savvy at-risk youth. I'm a 31-year-old fluid female and I have a moral question. I just the other day had intercourse with my ex-husband's best friend. Now I've been divorced for five years and it shouldn't be a problem except that my ex-husband is still in love with me. Even though he's moved on and is in a relationship with a beautifully awesome woman and they live about 10 hours away, basically I'm very attracted to this man, my, my ex-husband's best friend. But he has a lot to lose. He can lose his best friend. I don't really have anything to lose. I already lost it uh, five years ago. And after we had intercourse, and we'd been flirting for a couple of years because we still live in the same region. And after we had intercourse, the next morning I asked him, are you uncomfortable? And he said that it did make him feel uncomfortable. And I said, well, uh, do you want to do it again? And he said, yes. <laughs> but that he felt bad. And so I guess my question is, uh, since he does feel bad, is this something I should even pursue? Because I know that if I do pursue it, I will get it. We both admitted that we masturbate to the thought of each other. So, I mean, there's a lot of sexual tension going on. And if you think I should pursue it, what words could I say to him that would make him not feel so bad? Uh, so have you fucked your ex-husband's best friend again since you called? No, we haven't talked since. You, you haven't talked even? No, he's working out of town. Ah, uh, but he lives... We're like friends with benefits, but more the... Yeah. Right. But he lives where you live, right? He lives about an hour from where I live, but I work in his town frequently. And it, But your ex-husband lives 10 hours away, you said? Yes, maybe seven to ten. Yeah. Okay, so you're in much closer proximity to your ex-husband's best friend than you and your ex-husband's best friend are to your ex-husband. Yes. Uh, the, one of the follow-up <laughs> questions I wanted to ask you is, how do you know that your ex-husband is still in love with you? I think I might have overphrased it's still in love, but I know that he still has feelings because he's told me and his best friend. He's told you and his best friend that he still has feelings for you. Yes. Well, you know, divorce isn't always real, a realization that you hate absolutely everything about a person. It's just a realization that this – in many cases, that this person that in many ways you love isn't a right fit for you sort of multi-decade mate style. But you know, Yeah, and we've both mutually agreed that we will always have that kind of love forever, but it's not going to be for – as a mate style, right? We'll always love each other, but we're never going to always be in love. With each other. It was an amicable divorce, and you guys are both willing to acknowledge that there are things about each other that you love, right? Yes, yes. I'm not sure amicable is quite right. It was, <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was a hard divorce. Who initiated the divorce? Me. You. Yes. 
Okay, so now you're fucking his best friend. Okay, moving on to the next issue at hand. <laughs> you know, I, I don't ascribe to the, you know, you can't sleep with the ex of a friend thing. Um, unlike the previous call that we just took, I do think that this requires a bit of disclosure because the chances that your ex-husband will find out about this are so high that you don't want him to find out through gossip or an Instagram post or a Facebook update. That We have two mutual friends. Who know? On Facebook and – we really never, we don't really cross paths much unless, of course, someone hears this. Well, how, how often does he interact with his best friend? Um, I think they interact a few times a year. Okay, backing up. So it was an overstatement that your ex-husband is still in love with you. It's also kind of an overstatement that this guy is his best friend. Well, that's what they refer to each other as. They started businesses together. They have businesses together. Mm-hmm. They're just in different geographical locations. Okay. Well, your best friend, your husband's best friend, it's really on him to decide whether you're someone that he wants to be with regularly and openly. And then it's on him to go to his best friend, your ex-husband and say, ahem, just wanted to give you a heads up. I'm fucking your ex-wife. Okay. Yeah. That's what I was thinking, which means that I really just shouldn't do anything. And You should say that to him. Like, hey, I'd love to keep seeing you, but you need to get out in front of this and you need to tell ex-husband, current best friend that we're seeing each other. And I why, don't, does, why does the ex-husband have to know? Because we're not seeing each other in a it's, – it's more like a friends with benefits thing. What damage would it do to his relationship with his best friend if it came out, if, if, the, if your ex-husband found out through the rumor mill? Yeah. Or because he's a listener. Yeah, I know my ex-husband's not a listener. Okay, well, maybe he's a listener now and wasn't when you were together. You never know when someone starts listening. Truth be told, yeah, <laughs> I thought about that. Now I'm like really worried that it's going to air and it's going to be really bad. Well, it just didn't play it. <laughs> you know, you, ha- you have to weigh the the chances of you know that person finding out versus the explosion, right? And if the chances are non-existent, then you don't have to worry about the explosion. But if the chances are high, and I think they are high in a situation like this, we're talking about the best friend and the ex-wife of, and even if your connection to him is very sort of, you know, it's by a thread now, it's still by a thread. And the relationship it's going to damage isn't your relationship with your ex-husband. It's your friend with benefits relationship with his best friend. So he's the one who needs to run interference. He's the one who needs to, you know, if not get permission because it's already happened, but at least give the heads up and lay the groundwork for, hey, I'm sorry, this just kind of happened. And, you know, you meet people in life and sometimes you meet people through friends and through exes and, you know, the heart wants what it wants as one man who married his ex-partner's daughter once said. So what if we don't do it again and we just have this one experience and then I don't think we need to disclose it, right? Then you can stuff it down the memory hole forever. Okay. You can bury one experience. You cannot bury an ongoing intimate relationship. And friends with benefits, as we said a million times in this program, that is a relationship. Okay, I think burial is what it's at. Is there any way I could convince you not to play this on? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Really? Oh, I'm feeling like really I have a bad feeling that, you you know, you're just saying, what if it, he finds out? He's a grapevine. <laughs> hey, but, but look at this way. If, if your husband finds out and it all blows up, then you can keep fucking this guy because the worst that could happen happened. Ah, that's a really good good way to look at it. Thank you. Awesome. You're welcome. Good luck. Hi, Dan. I have a quick, I guess, 
kind of ethical question for you. So I know that you are definitely of the school of thought that says that uh, women should never, ever, ever fake orgasms under any circumstances. And while I definitely agree with you on that on a real life level, I'm just wondering what you think about in the sex work arena. Um, I am obviously a sex worker. I've been one for uh, on and off about three years, and um, I definitely have faked it in paid <laughs> encounters. Um, and, you know, I don't do it all the time. Like, for example, if, you know, during one of those encounters, a uh, guy doesn't go down on me or do anything really to try to get me off, I usually will not do a fine performance of a fake orgasm, but, you know, if there's some effort being put in there or, you know, it's uh, quote-unquote okay for me to touch my own clit, I will fake because it's just work sex is different than real-life sex, and uh, nine times out of ten, it's just never going to happen. But, you know, as you have said before, they are, clients are kind of paying for masterpiece theater sex. And um, I know a lot of them would be very let down if they didn't believe that I got off, even though it's just, again, not going to happen in the context of work. So just wondering if you think the way I'm going about it is okay, because sometimes I worry if I'm, I don't know, giving my clients false impressions about how female sexuality works. But then again, I know a lot of them are married and they're not really getting it on with the wives or anybody else outside of a paid sex and paid companion arena. But some of them are not married and some of them are just awkward when it comes to women and don't have a lot of experience. And I don't want to give them false hope or false impressions. And again, I try hard not to be uh, too fake about it, but in the end, I do have to fake. So what do you think? Aren't you conscientious? Aren't you just the sex worker of the year calling my show? I just uh, – if you were in the room, I would give you such a big hug right now. Uh, listen, you know, generally I've said and others have said and I, I agree and I've repeated uh, that a woman should never fake an orgasm precisely for the reason that you cite, uh, that it will give a man a false impression of his own skills. 75 percent of women cannot climax from vaginal intercourse, from penis and vagina sex alone and yet you meet guys who are in their early 20s all the time, college boys in my lectures, who look at you and say every girl I've ever had penis and vagina sex with has been able to come and then you can sometimes slowly see them putting it together in their head that 70 – that they've had sex with five girls, at least you know three, maybe four lied to them about it. But you're a special case. You are a performer. You're a sex worker. There is a masterpiece theater-esque quality to what you do. You're putting on a bit of a show for the dudes. Also, as I write this week in my, my column, Savage Love, uh, I mentioned female copulatory vocalization. It is a real thing. It's why many – the females of many mammals make a lot of noise and scream and yell uh, when they have sex and when they approach climax. And Men, the males of those species, uh, will climax faster and, and easier if the woman is vocalizing. So it could be a strategy for you in your line of work or for a woman who just wants to get it over with to vocalize away and fake that orgasm because it will help the guy get to his a little quicker. But 
you know, it could give a guy a false impression of his skills. And, and clearly you're worried about that. Some of the guys who are your clients uh, may not be getting sex anywhere else and may never get sex anywhere else. But some are, you know, maybe socially awkward and you're helping them to come out of their shelves and them grow and one day they may transition or move on to, uh, uh, you know, a non-paid partner. And are you setting that woman, that future woman up for crazy-ass expectations uh, coming from her lover about his skill level or the way women's bodies work. Perhaps you are, but there's a really easy way to control for that. All you have to do is say to your clients that uh, you, know, you have some interactions with them. You're obviously going to talk about the sex that you're going to have. When it's all over and you've had your thundering fictional orgasm, just say, you know, uh, oh, that was great, but, you know, that's me. You know, I come really easily. I'm not like most other women. Most other women do not climax as easily as I do from penis and vagina sex or whatever else we just did. But me, I've always been just easily orgasmic. But I am rare, rare, rare. Other women you may be with in the future will not climax as easily as I do and just appear to have and you will have to work a little harder in future with other women because, God, you're so good. I'm sure you're going to get other women. But just so you know, not other women are like me. And then you're in the clear. And then you can take the dude's money and the tip uh, with a clear conscience without any concerns about setting future girlfriends, wives or sex workers up for inflated expectations on a part of the man you just serviced. Hi, Dan. I'm a 24-year-old straight female and I've been sifting my way through the archives and I listened to episodes 55 and 56 in which you address talking dirty. I have a partner who it really turns him on, and for me, it actually kind of turns me off. So I'm wondering how we strike a compromise in that situation, because other than that, we're very sexually compatible. There are no compromises in situations like this, potentially. Uh, you know, there's something that he enjoys doing, turns him on, turns his partner off. There's no sort of half measure here. There's no sort of dirty talking or half dirty talking or dirty muttering that, that your partner can engage in that will not, you say, turn you off. So it's kind of going to be a no-go if indeed it does turn you off. You say it kind of turns you off and maybe there's a thin shred of hope in that kind of. You're young. You're 24 years old. Uh, when I was your age, when I was young, uh, there were things that people wanted to do, that boyfriends wanted to do, partners wanted to do that turned me off, not because they turned me off but just because I couldn't wrap my head around what the turn on there was because I hadn't – you know, my sexual horizons were still pretty limited and now I do those things and they turn me on. But if you would proposed to you know, 24 or 18-year-old Dan, some of the stuff – 40-something Dan loves to do, 20-year-old Dan would be like, ew, gross, no, never, that's a turnoff. So the only thing I would tell you to do here is to think. You know, we, we live in a deeply sex-negative culture. That, that sex negativity, that sex-negative impulse is ingrained in us, carved into us. Uh, that groove, that sex-negative groove is just carved into us so deeply that when somebody that we're with wants to do something that isn't something that we – ourselves have ever thought about doing or it was a genuine sort of coming from deep inside us turn on, we instantly react, overreact in, in a very negative and sex negative fashion. But if we just pause and think about it for a while, sometimes what our partners want to do isn't a huge turn off. It's just not something we've thought about before. And if we think about it, 
and relax into it a little bit, maybe it is something that we could grow to enjoy. So if you really enjoy him and this is something you want to maybe kick down, kick the can down the road, maybe explore a little later, maybe as your sexual horizons and sexual comfort level with him grows, maybe you can get there. But if you can't, if any dirty talk during sex for you is just – it's a no-go. It's a libido killer. Then there is no compromise because you can't do in bed what turns you off and it won't be a turn on for him, hopefully, to do in bed something that is actively turning off the partner that he is with, whose pleasure presumably and hopefully he is concerned with. There's no compromise position if that's the conflict. It's just can't happen. But before you rule it out entirely and forever, just sit with it for a while. Think about it for a while. Maybe ask him to write down what kind of things it is he's interested in saying uh, in a non-sexual context. Maybe there are some examples of stories with dirty talk in it uh, that he could share with you, not porn, so you don't have to hear it necessarily, but stories and you could get a better idea of what it is exactly uh, that he's proposing and then think about it. And maybe you'll get there like 20-year-old Dan eventually got to places that as a 40-year-old Dan, that 20-year-old Dan, would, his head would explode. Maybe you'll get there and maybe you won't. There are some things that when I was 20, people wanted to do with me that I still wouldn't do and don't enjoy and there's no compromising on. But you don't know who you'll be in a few years. You have to burn through that sex negativity. You have to work through it and the only way to figure out whether this is a genuine Fatal turnoff, never going to be it for you is to think about it for a little bit longer. And look at him. Is he worth thinking about it for a little bit? Maybe he is. Hi, Dan. I am a 55-year-old married by male. And every once in a while, I have to have a guy. I mean, it's just, just I, I enjoy that, and that's part of me. And uh, to make it easy, I put an ad on Craigslist, and I'm very honest on Craigslist about my age, my weight, I'm a big guy, and, and what I'm into. And the last time I did that, I got a response back from an 18-year-old who is a freshman at our local university saying, hot ad, we want to get together. And he included a picture, and he was a very good-looking young man, and so I typically kind of chalk it up to is it's going to be asking for money or something in that thing. But it didn't. He, he, he wanted to meet. We met very easily. And um, since then, he has contacted me a couple more times, and we have met a couple more times. Now, the reason why I am calling you is this, is that kind of a daddy bear coming out of me where this young man is from a small town in our state, uh, coming to the relatively big city to go to college, and he's not a stupid young man at all. He's actually entering as a freshman, but has credits to be a junior already, and is studying um, mathematics and engineering. But what I'm calling, is it appropriate for me, or am I sticking my nose in, where it shouldn't go to sit him down and talk to him about some of the dangers, consequences of Craigslist, those types of situations. Also, I'm thinking about, you know, has anybody really sat down and talked to him about HIV, hepatitis shots, all those types of things. And I'm wondering, is it something that I, I mean, I'm kind of feeling that as the older, more experienced person, hopefully, that I should be responsible enough and should sit down and do that. 
or am I really just sticking my nose in where it doesn't belong and I should enjoy what the relationship is and not worry about that kind of stuff? You stuck your dick in. Go ahead and stick your nose in. Like, you're you're a listener. Presumably you're a reader. I hope you're familiar if you've been reading long enough. Maybe it's been too long since I hammered away at this. I hope you're familiar with the campsite rule. That's the rule that applies to relationships where there's a, a significant age and experience gap and or experience gap because uh, sometimes you can be involved with somebody who's you know in their 30s and is very inexperienced and naive. But the campsite rule, which typically applies to you know somebody who's roughly your age and somebody who's this boy's age, young man's age, uh, is that you leave them in better shape than you found them. That's a rule of camping. Leave the campsite in better shape than you found it. If you're the older and or more experienced person in uh, you know kind of friends with benefits or NSA or brief kind of relationship – with a much younger or much more inexperienced person, the onus is on you. You have, a, you have a particular and special responsibility to leave that younger and or less experienced person in better shape than you found him. So speak the fuck up. Disinhibit. It, 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 I don't know where people get this idea that it's OK to have sex with somebody. It's OK to fuck them. It's OK to roll around with them. But you're kind of somehow violating their personal space or integrity if you – suss them out on what they know about HIV or hepatitis or the risks and dangers of X, Y, and Z because you might want to share some of your hard-earned wisdom and knowledge with them. Go the fuck ahead. You've pounded something into his ass. Go right ahead and pound something into his head. Do it. Talk to him. You know, a lot of young 18-year-old uh, queer kids, particularly small towns, even from big towns, they haven't had any gay sex ed. I realize you're bi but you're having gay sex with him. They haven't had any gay sex education. They haven't had any info uh, shared with them about STIs and a lot of them have had abstinence-only education which encourages young people to believe that if they are ignorant, if they don't know, it can't hurt them. And so you get people who think that they create a magic force field around themselves by pretending that whatever's bad out there can't get them because they're doing some sort of magical thinking around who they are or where they're meeting their partners or whatever and that confers some sort of immunity and it doesn't. So the onus is on you to really speak up and speak to him. God bless my first boyfriend when I was roughly this young man's age who not only wanted to use me for sex and did and I was happy to be so used but also then turned around and gave me books to read and you know, pounded something into my head, not just into my ass. At the end of the day and helped brace me, prepare me for you know gay life and dating life and shared with me information that my parents hadn't, my sex education teachers in high school hadn't. You're in a position to do that for him. You may find out. You may start to like say, hey, what do you know about X, Y, and Z? And he knows everything and he's really smart and he's been online and he's an autodidact about this shit because nobody – no matter how good the sex ed is outside of the UAA, nobody is teaching gay kids what they need to know about gay sex and gay dating and risks that are particular to gay people. You may find out he knows everything but you may find out he knows nothing and you can leave him in better shape than you found him by talking, by sharing, by informing in addition to fucking. Hi, Dan. This is Amy. I was out tonight having a couple of drinks, seeing a show and I was walking back and I saw these two kids, they really were kids, uh, sitting in a doorway and I stopped and they were just look so young and I had some cash tips and I kneeled down and I'm like, hey, how old are you guys? And I said they were 18. And after talking to them and pulling out some cash and giving it to them and 
and they're like, we're 14 and 16, one was a girl, one was a guy, and turns out the guy, kid, boy, was kicked out of his house from being gay. And I know you've talked about this on your show before, how gay youth are uh, unproportionately homeless because they're kicked out of their house because of their batshit Christian right-wing family. And um, I was saying, you don't have any answer, uncles, or is there anyone you can stay with? You really still need some care. And he's like, no, all my family's super religious. And I had no nothing to tell him. And I was wondering if there's any resources in Seattle or just generally where I could send him. And I asked if he had a library card, and I told him to go online and send a message to all of his extended family and be like, hey, my parents are nuts. Please, can I stay with you for six months? Like, even that will lead to longer time. But I was wondering if you had any resources. Yeah, that would be great. Joining us by phone right now, uh, Carl Siciliano, founder and executive director of the Ali Forney Center, the nation's largest organization dedicated to homeless LGBT youth, which is based in New York City. Hey, Carl, thanks for jumping on the phone with us. Well, thank you for having me, Dan. So before we get to uh, this caller's specific question, how big a problem is homelessness for LGBT youth? It's an enormous problem. I would argue it's the greatest crisis facing our community. You know, as as teens find the courage to come out at younger and younger ages, there are just thousands of them who are being uh, rejected by their families. And a conservative estimate would be that there are about 200,000 homeless LGBT youth on the streets of our nation. Uh, a less conservative estimate would be about 500,000. Um, you know, there hasn't really been a, a very thorough study, but but there are hundreds of thousands of, of homeless gay kids on the streets of our country. The, the stat that I've seen uh, cited frequently, that I've cited myself frequently, is that 40% of homeless youth are LGBT kids who've been kicked out or thrown out after they came out or were outed to their families or were even perceived to be gay or, or trans by their families. And this is also a huge issue, not just for gay kids, but for trans kids, for gender nonconforming kids of every stripe. Uh, because those are often the kids who don't have the option of the closet, the the masculine girls and the, the, the feminine boys or the trans girls and trans boys. So this isn't just about gay youth. This is about LGBT across the spectrum youth. And you know, 40 percent is a huge percentage of the LGBT – of the homeless youth population when you're talking about LGBT people who are less than 5 percent of the population by some estimates. Yeah, basically that means that an LGBT youth is about eight times more likely to experience homelessness than a straight youth. And there are not a lot of services out there for them. You know, Dan, it's, it's a, a disgrace, frankly. Uh, right now in this country, there are about 350 beds that are dedicated to, you know, these hundreds of thousands of homeless LGBT youth. And, um, you know, 350 for 200,000 is pretty pathetic. How many are there in New York City alone? In New York, there are just a, a little over 100 beds. Um, so about a third of the beds that exist in the whole country are, are in New York. In the Ali Fernay Center, we, we provide 89 beds mm -hmm. uh, in, in um, emergency housing and in transitional housing. But, you know, it, it's part of like a broader issue, which is our nation's shameful uh, neglect of, of homeless kids. Uh, there are... You know, the conservative estimate is that last year about 500,000 youth experienced homelessness in the United States, not not as like part of their families, but as unaccompanied minors. 
And there was only capacity for about 50,000 of them to receive any kind of support from homeless youth organizations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've got this huge crisis where, where there are just tons of, of young people out there who, who don't, aren't being supported by their families and are, you know, living on the streets and under bridges and, you know, hustling and prostituting to survive. And, and there's just, you know, not a public willingness to, to, put the resources together to to protect them and and you know i think it's shameful so we have to understand how bad things are for lgbt youth within like this broader context of how bad things are for all homeless youth can we play the blame game for a second um who do you blame for inattention to this issue you know often when i see the lgbt youth homelessness issue being discussed uh the the finger gets pointed at you know, the amorphous blob that is the gay community. Uh, and I think you know, the inattention of the gay community to this problem, this, this, this fear of acting uh, to do anything about this problem is, is partly you – know, that inhibition is partly tied to the old accusations of recruiting and so any interest expressed in children uh, for a lot of LGBT adults can seem like a minefield. But shouldn't a finger also be pointed at the heterosexual families that are failing these kids? Like we, we aren't their parents and there's a limit to what you – know, we should be coughing up money. We should be supporting organizations like Alley Forney Center. But isn't there a limit to what the gay community can do for these homeless LGBT youth? You know, Dan, that's a, that's a loaded question <laughs> that I could probably spend half an hour trying to answer. Um, I'm not trying to duck responsibility on the on I mean, behalf the of gay people everywhere. Here, the fundamental responsibility is that there are so many parents that can't accept their gay kids, their their lesbian kids, their transsexual, their transgender kids. I mean, that's that's the fundamental problem, right? And they are that, most they are most culpable for this crisis. Yeah, and then I would say that the um, the religious leaders who promote homophobia and create a climate in which parents have a harder time accepting their kids share a huge amount of the responsibility. I think the conservative politicians who exploit that kind of a climate also share share a huge uh, part of the responsibility. But you know, Dan, I, I did. We had a fascinating series of of. of, of uh, events at, at the, our drop-in center at the Alley Finney Center last summer where we called it the summer session with legends and pioneers and we asked you know people who had played groundbreaking roles in, in the LGBT movement to come and, and talk to our young people and it, one of the most fascinating ones we had was uh, two uh, Martin Boyce and Penny Garvin who were uh, rioters in the Stonewall riots came and they talked about the pivotal role that, that homeless queer youth played in the Stonewall riots and, um, you know, they talked about how the fiercest fighters in the streets were these kids who already at that time were living in the West Village and, and were kind of pioneers of, of, of LGBT visibility. Uh, they had nothing to lose. They, they fought fiercely. And, and, and they talked about how when the movement kind of started, people were embarrassed by these kids. Like, you know, they were prostitutes, they were homeless, they were dirty, they were on drugs, you know. And, and as we wanted to kind of present this image of, you know, what it was to be gay, what it was to be, you know, to come out and, and, and you know, to feel free and accepted, that, that that wasn't the image that we wanted to present. And they talked in a really painful way about how, you know, some of those early kids were just kind of shut out of the priorities as we started our movement. And, you know, I, I agree with you that the, the fundamental issue here is that there are so many parents who can't accept their kids. But, 
acknowledging that and recognizing that and, and incorporating that into the priorities of our movement, I think has, has been a problem. It's like, it hasn't happened enough. And it's like, you know, if we don't fight for these kids and if we don't demand that public resources go to them, and if we don't demand that our tax dollars protect our kids, who will? I mean, I, certainly the parents who throw them out aren't going to be doing it. Can we do both at once? Can we demand services, action, tax dollars, stand up for these kids while also pointing an accusatory finger at their families of origin, at these, at the Tony Perkinses and Brian Browns and Maggie Gallagher's of the world who are setting these kids up? I mean, certainly. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I, I took on Cardinal Dolan in New York because I feel like, you know, when, when, when marriage equality passed in New York State, he was running around acting like, you know, the world was going to come to an end. And he compared it to the crucifixion of Christ. Um, you know, how, what does that do to parents? You know, what does that do to a parent who's trying to decide whether or not they can deal with, with having, you know, their LGBT child in the house? Um, mm. You know, so, so, you know, it's not an either or issue. I think it's, it's a both issue. Um, I think that, that the, the act of, of, of rejecting your child, of driving your child away from the home, you know, has to be seen culturally as something shameful. You know, like right now, these parents are ashamed of their kids. What they need to be is ashamed of, of rejecting their kids. So what is it that sensitized you to this issue and inspired you to found Ali Forney Center? What, what event, what experience? I had worked with homeless adults for about 10 years uh, from the mid-80s to the mid-90s. And then in the mid-90s, I started working with homeless kids in New York City. And I was really shocked when I started doing the work to see how bad it was for these kids. Um, you know, I was used to the notion that, that adults in New York had the ability to get shelter if they wanted it. And when I started working with homeless kids at a drop-in center in Times Square, uh, you know, the vast majority of these kids had nowhere to go and were just stranded out on the streets with, with no shelter. Um, and, and, you know, it was immediately obvious that, that um, LGBT youth made up a hugely disproportionate number of these kids. And um, it was what was most painful was to see how often these kids would actually get murdered in the streets. So Ali Fournay was one of seven LGBT youth that I, I knew back in the 90s that, that you know, came to my drop-in center that, that were murdered out on the streets with, with nowhere safe to go. And, um, you know, it just was a horrifying situation. Um, and it, it was just really hard for me to be sitting there as a gay man in New York seeing these kids die in the street. And, um, you know, here we are, like New York City, the birthplace of the gay rights movement in the United States, and, and, and our kids are just, you know, have nowhere to go. I mean, at that time, the only shelter in, in New York was for youth was run by, by Covenant House, which was this Roman Catholic organization. And, you know, the gay youth would be told they were sinners when they went there. Uh, they'd be beaten up by the other kids. And then the staff would act as though, you know, the problem was the gay kids acting too flamboyant or something and provoking it. Uh, but these kids were just stranded out there with, with nowhere to go. And, um, you know, it was really that, that really painful experience of, of, of seeing kids that I knew and cared about die in the streets that made me feel that I had that. to start the Ali Fernay Center. Um, let's turn to the, the question and the situation this caller found herself in that I'm sure perhaps other uh, listeners may have or may one day find themselves in. She encountered a kid a gay kid who'd been kicked out of his house and was on the street with nowhere to go and no plan and it had just happened. And, and her question is what resources are out there for these kids? And the answer is not a whole hell of a lot 
So what would you advise someone in her shoes to do, someone who has this kind of encounter with a homeless gay kid? What is the best advice you could give somebody? You know, I think that the best thing people can do is educate themselves about what is available in their communities. So, for example, in Seattle, I, I, I wasn't sure. Was the call from Seattle? Yeah, the call was from Seattle. Okay. So in, in Seattle, there's an organization called Youth Care, and it's not an LGBT organization, but they they seem to do some good work with, with LGBT youth. They have a, a transitional housing program. I think it's called ISIS House that's dedicated to, to LGBT youth. So, you know, knowing what's what's available in, in your local communities is, is, is a good way to start. Uh, the Ali Fournay Center has a, a, a website, uh, org. That's A-L-I-F-O-R-N-E-Y center.org. And, and we have a, a list of resources by state uh, of what's available for homeless LGBT youth. So people can look at that. Also, the, the True Colors Fund uh, that was started by Cindy Lopper. They've put together a national resource list of, of what's available. Um, but I also think that the reality is that in, in any of these places, you're going to have a situation where there are probably 10 times as many kids who need shelter as there is shelter. And... Um, I think that part of what people can do, and then this is like a lot more than just a simple immediate response, is become engaged in a political process of demanding that their localities and that their states uh, become more responsive to this issue. Uh, in New York, we, we did something called the Campaign for Youth Shelter, where we um, got LGBT providers and um, and groups like the Empire State Pride Agenda, which is like in New York State, it's like the big gay state rights group. Mm. Uh, we joined together with like progressive churches and, and came up with a plan where we said we want the city and the state to commit to a plan to, to add 100 beds a year into their no more longer waiting lists at the youth shelters. And uh, the, the new mayoral candidate, uh, Bill de Blasio, said he'll implement this plan if he's, if he's elected. So, you know, it, part of it, I think, is, is people coming together and raising their political voice to demand that, that, that kids to be better protected. I hate to nail you down because there's probably no good answer. But in that moment, on the street, in that interaction that she had, you know, she could be as informed, you know, she could be informed about uh, services in her community for LGBT youth or homeless youth generally. She could impart that information to that kid. What else should she have done or could she have done? What would you advise somebody in that moment, that interaction to do? You know, I, I, it's hard for me to, to answer that. Um, you know, I guess she could ask if the kid is hungry and, and, and take him and get him a meal. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I wouldn't recommend that she bring the, the kid to her house because that, that could, um, you know, create child welfare kinds of issues for her. She could call the police, but I think a lot of kids wouldn't want that interaction. Um, mm -hmm. You know, th th that's the problem, Dan. When, when you have uh, a service infrastructure that doesn't exist, you know, with, that's so grossly inadequate, th there's often not a very appropriate response for, for a person encountering the young person suffering. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the tragedy here. My impulse would be to ask that kid for his parents' phone number. Get on the phone with his parents, but I'm an asshole. <laughs> yeah, you know, a lot of kids are really embarrassed and ashamed of having been rejected by their families and, and don't. Yeah, like, you know, you, one of the things that when I first started doing this work, I thought, like, okay, well, we'll get a lawsuit and we'll start suing all the parents. But mm -hmm. the kids never wanted to do that. 
You know, they never wanted to, to, to get their parents in trouble. They, they, they would fantasize on some level that things could get worked out. Um, you know, kids also blame themselves a lot. You know, it's, 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 um, it's tough. It's, 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 it's not, um, and, and frankly, a lot of the kids that I've talked to feel like leaving their homes was the best thing that they did. I mean, like, you know, they, they were being subjected to such, you know, physical and, and mental abuse. I mean, I've had kids talk about feeling suicidal every day in their homes mm-hmm. and, you know, it didn't get better until they left. And even though they're homeless and in the streets, at least they, they, they don't feel like, you know, so attacked at the core of who they are by the people that are supposed to love them. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's just something so devastating and painful about, you know, having your parents who, who are, you know, the, 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 supposed to be there for you and are supposed to love you, you know, to have them be ashamed of you, to, to have them be disgusted by you, you know, to have them suddenly treat you so differently from your siblings. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a really painful thing. And, you know, so much of the, the, the focus that, that's happened around suicide in the last few years has been, you know, very much about like schools and bullying. But studies show that that youth who are not accepted by their families for being LGBT are eight times more likely to become suicidal. Oh than- my God! I scream about that all the time. That the worst bullies are often the parents. And I was at the White House anti-bullying conference, and they kept talking about parents and preachers and teachers and what they're going to do about bullying of queer kids. And I kept in the breakout session interrupting the dude and going, can we talk about parents? Can we talk about the worst and most destructive bullies of all in the lives of many LGBT kids, the most dangerous bullies, parents? Because they kept talking about parents as if they were the solution to bullying. And for so many queer kids, parents are the er bullies. And there's this reluctance to acknowledge it. Yeah, and the, the thing is, when, when a kid commits suicide, it's like, you know, I think there's always like a, a societal kind of impulse to protect the family and to feel sorry for the family. Um, when, when a kid is perceived to have committed suicide because of, of, of bullying in school, it's like, you know, there's like a whole audience that saw it happen. You know, it's like mm-hmm. your, your friends, your, your, your teachers, the guidance counselors, it's like people saw what was happening. When, when, when a kid is, you know, being tormented in, 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 in their home, you know, it's like who sees that happening? You know, and the kid's embarrassed. He doesn't talk about it. And they, sometimes, they, they, and sometimes the suicide is after the kid has left the home. That the you know, kid, and, the and, kid and, flees, and, winds up on the streets, um, engages in survival prostitution, abuses drugs and alcohol, and it can, it can be for some a survival mechanism, absolutely, but for others, a, a slow motion suicide. You know, one of the most horrifying stories that I ever heard was. Um, this this um, train conductor reached out to me, and he talked to me about having you know been traumatized by this experience that he went through, where um, uh, his train mowed down a kid you know, that jumped in front of it, and he you know wasn't able to stop the train, and he tried to like do some research and understand who this kid was and, and why this kid had, had had jumped in front of his train, and and this was a kid who's who came out to his family. Uh, not far from where I live in upstate New York, and um, the father uh, immediately um, threw him out of the house. He tried to come back the next day, and the mother said that the father, you know, would kill him and bury him in the backyard if he came back. You know, he spent a couple of months living like in parking lots and and forests in upstate New York, and you know, after a couple of months of that, he jumped in front of this train and killed himself. Uh. Um, 
and you know, but 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 that's the kind of a situation where what is the is the parent going to put out a press release saying you know we rejected our kids and now they've killed themselves? You know, so so those kinds of stories don't get the kind of play and don't get the kind of attention that that the school bullying stories have. But I mean, yeah, it's 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 a profound reality that there are just hundreds of thousands, if not millions of parents in this country who are not able to be parents to their LGBT kids, you know, whose level of hostility and rejection is is so so harsh. And, and, and you know, we we think like, okay, it's, it's amazing progress now that like a slight majority of the country is willing to be supportive of, of, of gay rights. But that still means that there's, hun- you know, hundreds of millions of people who aren't supportive of gay rights. Mm-hmm. And, and, and these kids are so vulnerable and, and so uh, endangered when they're, when they're coming out in, 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 in homes where, where they're not going to be accepted. And, you know, but for me, it, it kind of comes back like, as as important as it is to kind of place blame where blame belongs, it, for me, it's more like, well, what are we going to do about it? You know, what are we going to do about the fact that there are 350 beds for 200,000 homeless kids? And that, I think, is is, is the, the the more pressing question. There are all these kids out there that are suffering really badly, just like, you know, this you know woman had, had this encounter with, with a homeless kid. And it's like, you know, what are we as a community, or, or what are we going to do about it? Carl Siciliano founder and executive director of the Ali Forney Center. Thank you for doing something about it. Listeners, you can do something about it by going to AliForneyCenter.org. You can make a donation. You can buy something off their Amazon wish list to help out the kids in their center and to help grow the center and provide more beds for homeless LGBT youth. Thank you for jumping on the phone today, Carl. Thank you, Dan. I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk about this. Hi, Dan. I'm 33. I'm in a happy, open marriage. We've been together for 14 years and we have a two-year-old daughter. Five years ago, I met and spent the night with this really charming, brilliant, cute, funny, great guy. We, we had incredible chemistry. And uh, we sort of commenced this like hot and heavy phone relationship because we live on opposite sides of the country. We talk on the phone all the time. We hooked up a couple times, but pretty quickly he said, you know, I can't have sex with you because I don't want to be, I'm not identifying with the polyamory thing. I don't want that. I want a real relationship. So I said, fine. And we continued with this really great friendship. We had incredible amounts of fun together all the time. Um, recently, we were in the same city and we met up, spent the night together, went on a crazy rampage and got really fucked up and something was different. Um, so we found ourselves hooking up again uh, multiple I love you were exchanged during the course of the night and it was just super intense to find out that we both had sort of been burying the same thing for so long has been continuing on what seemed like a friendship tip for so long but actually these feelings had you know remained for both of us and were really really strong for both of us um, and now I'm just totally confused I don't know what to do next I think um, you know he still maintains he's not you know he won't affect with me he doesn't want to get too deeply in love with me. He's burned through his way through many amazing girlfriends, um, you know, sort of implicitly or explicitly. He'll compare them to me sometimes. I don't want him to be unhappy. I don't want him to be alone. I don't know what I have to offer him, you know, because obviously I am going to stay partners. I'm going to stay, you know, uh, in my city on the East Coast. So, you know, do I need to cut him off? Is there some way that we can fit each other into our lives? It's been valuable for both of us for this up to this point, and I just want to figure out a way that we can both continue things. And of course, I'd like to continue the physical side of things as well because it's really 
great for me, and it's really hot, and he's super kinky. I can't believe, as someone in a poly relationship, you let him get away with saying that he didn't want a poly relationship. He wants a real relationship, as if poly relationships aren't real. Well, they're real, right? Uh, what he wants is an exclusive relationship and his feelings for you are bringing him into conflict, a, a conflict that many people in romantic relationships, exclusive, monogamish, open, poly, find themselves in. The, the, you know, a conflict between what I want and or what I thought I wanted and what I'm willing to settle for or what I'm willing to agree to to be with person X. People can go into their dating and romantic lives saying I want this, 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 this and this and I will not settle for anything else and then they meet somebody who is – not this, who's that, that, that and that but they love that person. They have such strong feelings for that person that they reexamine their beliefs, misconceptions, prejudices, allegiances to whatever it was, their preconceptions about what they thought they wanted. So let him sit with that. Let him make a free choice. Go to him and say, this is who I am. This is what we've got, you and I. Uh, I've got other stuff and you would have to wrap your head around being a part of sort of a larger, more loving circle, family, than perhaps you imagined for yourself uh, when you were thinking about dating and romance, when you thought what you wanted was a sexually exclusive or emotionally exclusive relationship. Maybe you're capable of more. Maybe I'm worth you expanding your views uh, about what is possible in a loving, committed relationship. And then let him make the choice. It's his choice to make. You don't have to make it for him. Hi, Jen. I am a 53-year-old male. I know, ancient for your show. But my question is a very simple one. My girlfriend and I have been going out for three years. We've known each other for over 10. We're very happy. Things are great. But here's the question. It involves fragrance. My girlfriend adores fragrance. Me, not so much. She wants me to wear a fragrance, and she finds that that increases my attractiveness, if there is such a word, to her. So my question is, is me wearing fragrance part of the great GGG bargain? Because she's certainly GGG to me, and I am GGG to her in all other respects, but I just don't care for fragrance. Should I just suck it up and get over this, or is there a better way to think about this? Here's the funny thing. Uh, my husband, Terry, he likes fragrance. He doesn't like me to wear fragrance, but he likes to wear fragrance himself. But I hate it. I don't like how it smells. I like how he smells. Uh, I hit his deodorant. I like how he smells so much. Um, although I let him use it once in a while in emergencies. Uh, so for me, he stopped using fragrance to be GGG. So, you know, in part because every once in a while he would put on a fragrance that some horrible ex boyfriend of mine had worn 10 years or, you know, 25 years ago, and I would have these flashbacks on other people. Like, you smell like somebody else that's really fucking freaky. Uh, and so he stopped to be GGG, to be, you know, good to me. Uh, although he does every once in a while bust it out and wear it, and I suck it up and deal. So I think that to be GGG, you could suck it up and wear a fragrance for her every once in a while. It would be too much to ask, I think, on her part for you to wear a fragrance constantly all the time because you don't really dig it because you don't really like it. But to be indulgent and GGG doesn't mean you do whatever it is that the other person wants constantly or whenever they want it. It means you are indulgent. You, you indulge them from time to time occasionally or a reasonable amount of indulgence. But you don't have to – if you know, your partner's into bondage and you're not uh, or you could take it or leave it, you don't have to agree to be tied up every single time you have sex for the rest of your life to qualify as being GGG. You just have to be willing to kind of like go there every once in a while for them. And I think you can go to fragrance every once in a while for her. 
Hi, Dan. I am a 22-year-old bi-curious female, and I have a question for you. So on my 22nd birthday, I got completely shit-faced and ended up hooking up with my best friend in the bathroom. Um, my best friend is a female, and we were extremely loud, and the apartment was full of our friends, um, and including my boyfriend. Uh, needless to say, he was furious, uh, almost broke up with me, it was really dramatic and awful, and I had talked to him before and told him that I was, you know, like, curious, and he just kind of wrote it off, um, and said, cheating is cheating, that's kind of all there is to that. So, now I kind of have these depressed feelings. And like we've talked about three thumbs before, um, which always end in a big fight, but I would be willing to try and talk to him about that again. Um, I just don't know what to do. I would, I mean, I love him so much, and we talk about marriage quite often, and I believe that we could get married and live a very happy life, but I don't want to just be, like, thinking all the time. And it's not worth losing him just to, like, mess around with girls, you know, and then no more boyfriend. That's not worth it. I don't know. I was just wondering what you thought. You're 22 years old. You're bi. You're drunk. Well, I don't know if you're drunk now. Uh, Probably. Past being prologue, you're probably shit-faced right now. Listen, you're a 22-year-old by not so much curious anymore, uh, young lady, and you want to have sex with women, your best friend included. You want to have three ways with your boyfriend and two women and the guy you're with right now is upset at that idea, upset the idea of you having sex with women without him, upset at the idea of you having sex with women with him. Do you know how many guys out there – want you to be their girlfriend, would die to be with a girl like you. This guy is not the right guy for you. You are going to have sex with women, whether he likes it or not. Clearly, you're going to have sex with women at parties while he listens and is cuckolded by girl cuckolded in in front of all of his mutual friends by his drunk by girlfriend This is not going to work out. You need to thank him for his time and his attention uh, and thank him for whatever good things he did for you during this relationship and move the fuck on. You guys are not right for each other. This is a recipe for more drunken nights of impulse obliteration, which is probably why you got shit-faced in the first place, where then you will act out on these desires that he doesn't allow you and then you guys have these big stupid fucking fights where he has to forgive you and you – Do the right thing, bye chick, and dump the straight monogamist boy and go find the either straight or bye boy who would regard you as the jackpot fucking girlfriend of the century and date that guy. Find somebody with whom you are sexually compatible. It ain't this guy, all right? Because sooner or later, this relationship is going to end and it can end now cleanly and amicably with an acknowledgement of basic fundamental sexual incompatibility. Or you can push it until he breaks up with you in a huge knockdown drag out fight because you've done something like this again. End it now. Hi, Dan. Um, last night, my boyfriend and I were went out to dinner and we went to a bar. And after dinner, I went um, downstairs to the bathroom and I entered the women's bathroom. And there were four 
half naked um, drag queens getting ready and putting on makeup for drag queen bingo. So it didn't bother me at all. But I went back upstairs and told my boyfriend, oh, that's so funny. This is probably the only context in which I would go into a women's bathroom, find a bunch of men there, and find it to be pretty normal. His question was, well, shouldn't they be in the men's bathroom? And we had um, a discussion about it and didn't come to a a resolution. And I know that in episode 359, you said that cross-dressing is for straight men while drag queen is for gay men. So I'm just wondering if you could help us out with this discussion and let us know which bathroom you think the drag queens technically should have been in. I'm assuming that you were in a gay bar because generally you will not stumble over drag queens in bathrooms or out of bathrooms in straight bars unless it's some sort of very special occasion or very special straight bar. So if you were in a gay bar, often in gay bars where they will have drag performances, the drag queens will use the women's restroom to get dressed, to change, to put on makeup because it's empty, because there aren't a lot of women in the gay bar because it's a gay bar. So they will sort of take over – and I say this as a recovering drag queen myself. They will take over the the women's restroom and put on makeup and if a lady comes in while we're all in there uh, doing a hair, we're happy to get out of the way and let her use the can and we're all just some of the girls at that moment. Uh, you know, There are different rules that tend to apply to gay bars uh, and to bathrooms in gay bars. People tend to – be a little gender nonconforming in gay bars. And so if you're uncomfortable stumbling over a man in drag, a gay dude in drag in a women's restroom, you might want to not go to gay bars if you, where there are drag performers or drag performances. If your boyfriend is uncomfortable with that because dude's in the women's room with my girl, then he might not want to go to gay bars with his girlfriend. But if you're going to go to gay bars where there are drag shows as straight people, remember – our turf, right? Slightly different rules than than straight bars out there in the world. I was just in a restaurant. I was just in a bar in London uh, a couple of weeks ago where the restrooms were all gender neutral, that there was a long hallway with sinks and then a long wall of stalls. And at one end, some urinals for guys who were brave enough to haul it out at that end of that hallway uh, with their backs to the room while women were behind them washing their hands, as many guys were, as I was. Uh, so this sort of of tightness and, and weirdness in the culture about people peeing in the same place that other people of the opposite sex happen to be uh, also peeing or putting on their makeup if they're drag queens is a little ridiculous uh, and, and grounded in irrational fears. You know, the, the unspoken sort of fear here is that, oh, you will be what? Sexually assaulted? In a bathroom? This is what gets trotted out. All these fucking fake controversies, all these laws being passed around and all this demagoguing about trans women using public restrooms. And it's always about predation. It's always about trans women are going to get secret thrills or they're going to prey on your wives and daughters if they're in the bathroom. Google sexual assault and public restroom and you will find thousands of examples in the news category of people being assaulted preyed upon by pervs in public restrooms and all the pervs are straight men, straight, not trans men, hiding in stalls, leaping out of women, not trans women. There's no epidemic of sexual assaults or secret perving in bathrooms by trans women. It's all straight guys. 
So if you're in a gay bar and there's some drag queens in the bathroom, you know, the unstated fear there, I guess, on your boyfriend's part, maybe on your part, your discomfort is informed by these assumptions that you are unsafe because there's a there's a dude in the bathroom. You know what? There's a, a, a gay dude in a dress in the bathroom. You'll be fine. Hey, Dan. I'm calling in response to something in episode 360 about the woman whose ex-girlfriend uh, had a bad case of penis envy. You know, it sounds like, yeah, she might have just been full-on crazy, but I have to wonder if the ex-girlfriend isn't actually a trans man kind of in utero. Like, in other words, if she, or rather he, really, had serious body dysmorphia and all the mania about penis envy was just the kind of outward manifestation of his internal turmoil over being trans and coming to terms with it. You know, that's not to say that these two should have stayed together. <laughs> this is just a possible explanation for all the so-called craziness. Hello, Team Dan Savage. This is in response to episode 360, the man who wanted to end a long-term relationship and had difficulties because the other partner was traveling. I was thinking that when he does this, and he should do it soon, like you said, Dan, uh, when he does break up with her, he should tell her that while she is absolutely welcome to come, he understands that she probably doesn't want to, and he should offer immediately to pay for any rebooking fee because, I mean, it just seems like the right thing to do. Hi, Dan. I am calling in response to Podcast 360, and, oh, you are killing me. Just going on and on and on about how poorly adjusted and fucked up in the head you must be if you never smoked pot and how that person would never be president or should never be president. Dan, a lot of people have never smoked pot. It doesn't mean we're prudes. It doesn't mean we're fucked up. Everybody has their reasons. And for a guy who's all about choices, I don't think you would support that. I support your right to smoke as much pot as you want. And I'd be a fucking great president, Dan. So come on, you hurt my feces. And we're going to leave it there. As always, Magnum subscribers, we love you. Thank you so much for your support. 206-201-2720 is the number here at The Lovecast. If you want to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. Speaking of future shows, we're getting ready to uh, think about doing our Halloween show. And we wanted people to call in and share with us their stories of sexy, sexy Halloween encounters. Halloween, as I wrote in my new book, American Savage, has become kind of heteroween. It's very sexualized. It is for adults now. Uh, I call it the straight pride parade. So call 206-201-2720 and share with us your sexy, sexiest Halloween story, Halloween costume, Halloween party, the sexiest thing that's ever happened to you at Halloween. And we may play your story of sexy, sexy Halloween experiences on the Halloween episode of the Savage Clubcast. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Leah Delaria, who is hilarious and terrific as a member of the ensemble in Orange is the New Black. I'm at FakeDanSavage on Twitter, and Leah Delaria is at RealLeahDelaria on Twitter. And you should follow her because she is high hilarious. We've asked Leah to come on the Savage Lovecast and handle a bunch of dikey dikey questions because Leah is a dikey dikey dyke, uh, and she is all for it. So if you have a dikey dikey question that you want me and Leah Delaria to answer for you, Call that question in 206-201-2720. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for that.